Where hundreds turned out, they're very loyal uh, to their church. Hundreds turned out to the cathedral at Enniskillen. And you may remember that uh, Enniskillen was a place where there was one of the worst massacres of the Troubles. And just to keep walking past that war memorial brought it back. But even more it brought back, we, there every single meeting was a lady who played the organ once twice, uh, the widow of Gordon Wilson, a man who did his best after those troubles to bring reconciliation, met with the IRA, not terribly productively, but went all the way he could. Their daughter had been killed at the war memorial in that uh, massacre, and since then a son has been killed in a car crash, and partly because of the pressure Gordon Wilson has died rather earlier than you might have expected. And yet his widow, full of reality of the risen Jesus, grateful for what I preached during Holy Week from John's Gospel, and so full of the reality of the joy of a risen Jesus. These are truths that we need to hold on to. So I want to suggest to you today, as we read these verses in Philippians 3, and this post-Easter period, three things. The Christian rejoices to be in Christ. The Christian longs to be like Christ. The Christian waits to be with Christ. I said at 9.15, I sometimes give you the whole pattern of where I'm going, so that if you do go to sleep during my sermon, you know where I am when you're waking up again. You'll get the general drift of how it's going. So first of all, the Christian rejoices to be in Christ. There's verses 7 to 9. And being in Christ is, is Paul's shorthand for being a Christian. It's also equally his shorthand for being in the church. You see, you cannot be in Christ without being in the church, in the true sense of that word. John Stott, in one of his famous books, writes uh, that young people of our age give a yes vote to Jesus and a no vote to the church. And one can understand why, but you can't. For if you give a yes vote to Jesus, you are by that very token giving a yes vote to the church, not as it's constituted, not as it often is, but as it was meant to be, the family of God. You're in Christ, you're in the church. And that's what Paul talks about here. Verse 9, being found in him. He was actually in prison. Uh, but wherever he was, he was in Christ. If you are so really in Christ, where you are geographically or uh, in terms of your uh, chronologically, you are in Christ. And that's a very rich thing. And Paul could be in Christ because, you see, there had been a dramatic change of events since the Damascus Road. He could say, you see, in verse 8, that he'd lost all things. What did that mean? What did Paul lose when he became a Christian? When he entered into a relationship with the risen Lord Jesus, what did he lose? Well, he, he possibly lost his family. That's certainly possible. He certainly lost his reputation as a leader of the Jewish people. He lost his ease and comfort. And eventually he lost his life. I've lost all things. But he said, that's nothing compared to what I've gained. And this whole picture of the richness of Christ, one of the best little commentaries on Philippians is by a good friend of mine, Alec Matier, and the, the, the comment is called The Richness of Christ. Have you seen it in a second-hand bookshop? Get hold of it. For it is all to do with the richness of Christ. He gained him, and there is no other religious equivalent in the world. There are a thousand and one religions, but nobody but us, nobody but we can present a living, alive Saviour with whom you can have a continuing relationship. It's not mere words, it's reality, a new relationship. 
Secondly, a new righteousness. That's what he talks about, you see. His righteousness is, uh, verse 9, not his own righteousness from the law, but coming through faith in Christ. We read the bit in Jeremiah where it's not new in one sense, it's promised right through Scripture. There from Abraham's day onwards he believed and it was reckoned as righteousness. Jeremiah promised the Lord our righteousness. Not a DIY religion of gaining righteousness which had been Paul. And you can see what Saul of Tarsus felt, you see, in verses uh, 5 and 6. This is what he used to boast about. All the things that were true of him. Genuine Jew. Pharisee of Pharisees. Member of the Sanhedrin, almost certainly. Zealous in persecuting the church. Legally, absolutely correct. Nobody was more religious. But he recognized that it didn't get him anywhere. And that was discarded. And you notice, please note, in verse 7, the tense, whatever your version says, is in the past tense. I considered loss. On that moment, he worked out that all the things that once had meant everything to him linked, compared with the relationship with Jesus through his death and resurrection, were nothing. Now, if you follow it through, the past tense of verse 7 becomes the present tense of verse 8. If when he was converted he worked it out now, as a mature Christian, I consider everything a loss. Everything now, everything a loss. Compared with the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's a tremendous thing. Not just having a relationship with the surpassing greatness. And compared with that, I consider other things rubbish. Strong word, garbage. What football crowds sometimes shout at their team when things aren't going well. Garbage. That's the word. Strong language. And yet, even in the pews of Fullwood sometimes, there are people who still imagine that I get to heaven by my good deeds. Paul would say, if I may be allowed, garbage. You won't. I won't. You can't. I can't. And why would I want all that garbage when I can have a, a, a relationship with Christ which gives me righteousness with God? I am right with him because of what Jesus did for me on the cross. All that is righteousness. Later on in the service, I'm, the preacher's allowed to choose one hymn after a sermon, morning and evening. I've chosen my two hymns. I was told when I chose Before the Throne of God Above, you sang it last week, but you're going to sing it this week as well, because it's a great hymn, and we're going to sing not just yet, we're not singing it just yet, don't worry, the sermon's only a third of the way through. But in due course, we're going to sing Before the Throne of God, because it sums up this great truth that we're in Him, not because of what we've done, but Christ, God looks on Christ and accepts me in him. And that's still true after Easter. I've been long enough ordained to remember the days, and these are true, what I'm going to say now. The days when as a curate we had communion services on Easter day at 6 o'clock in the morning, 7 o'clock in the morning, 8 o'clock in the morning, 9.30 in the morning, 11 in the morning, and 6.30 at night, because everybody came to communion on Easter day. Uh, that was a long tradition. You see, the old prayer book says, a little rubric, which says that churchgoers should go to communion at least five times, no, three, sorry, at least three times a year, of which Easter be one. That's in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. And some people never read anything except Easter 
1. And that's when they all came, Easter 1. And one, of the, one of the staggering things was, the earlier the day, the, the more the non-church goers came. It was one of the strange things to me. If I was a non-church guy, I wouldn't choose to come at 6 in the morning, but they did. By the time you got to 6.30, you've got the regulars uh, there. But you see, what we did, did we do on Easter Day? The day of resurrection. The day of the risen Jesus. We broke bread, as we shall this morning, and remembered his death. And rightly so. Not just once a year, but constantly. But we remember the Easter truth is we remember his death because it's through that alone that we can be right because of his sufferings. A Christian rejoices to be in Christ. A new relationship. A new righteousness. Secondly, verse 10, the Christian longs to be like Christ. Paul knew that his doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, great reformation truths we must hold on to at all costs, it has a dangerous, slight misuse. It could be misused to say, well, if I'm saved by his grace, I can live as I like, I'll be alright on the day of judgment, I can do what I like so long as I believe in him. And of course, Paul says there were people in his day who said that, of his truth. Romans 6 verse 1, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? God forbid, the Greek language is strong, not on your life. How can anybody who depends on Jesus for forgiveness of sins, believing that he died on the cross to forgive sin, how can I go on dallying with that sin that put him there? But on the other hand, it is a reminder to us that the only way in which I can be forgiven I can reach heaven through his forgiveness. And in the light of that, I should want desperately to be like him. Please get it the right way around. People almost still think that if, if they try to be like Christ, then one day they may be with Christ. The Bible teaches that because I am in Christ, then I shall try to be like Christ, which I shall never ever completely be. And then one day, by his grace, I shall be with Christ. So, how do I long to be like Christ? Notice in verse 10 there are three things. Knowing the person, experiencing the power, paying the price. Knowing the person, first of all. Do you see that in verse 10? I want to know Christ. The verb's very clear. It's the verb that's used of knowing a person, not just knowing truths. Way back in Genesis 4, it comes first of all, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and they had a child. It was a personal relationship. And of course, Adam didn't just know Eve once, there was a continuing relationship. And the longing of a Christian is that we should want to know him better. In any right marriage relationship, the more we know, the more we love. And so it ought to be in our relationship with our Lord. The more we know, the more we love, and the more we love, the more we want to know. It's a living relationship with a person, the uniqueness of the Christian faith, and therefore my longing is to know him more. Some of you may remember there was a time in the church when we had a, a strange heretical doctrine around called God is dead. Amazing what strange views the church comes up with from time to time. God is dead was a kind of theology. And somebody asked Billy Graham that simple question. Dr. Graham, do you subscribe to this view that God is dead? 
No, said Billy Graham. He can't possibly be. I was talking to him this morning. Isn't that a rather nice way to answer these guys? Simplistic, but correct and right. And if I have a relationship when I'm talking to him and he with me, well, that's my longing. Secondly, experiencing the power. You will notice, and you should be surprised at first, that the power of the resurrection comes in verse 10 before the fellowship of his sufferings. And you might have thought it should be the other way around. Suffering first, resurrection second. But with the Apostle Paul, and with any genuine conversion experience, you discover the power first on the Damascus Road, a voice saying, Saul, Saul, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. And only later did he discover he had to suffer for his name's sake. power of his resurrection was the beginning. Now that's not just something that we'll, we'll enjoy in heaven. It's a reality for us now. You thought last week in Ephesians 1 of some of the great truths of the reality of the resurrection affecting our lives now. Knowing his risen power in our lives. For example, Paul can write in Romans 8 that our body is dead, but it's alive because of the Spirit who will give life to our mortal bodies. Does that mean when we have a resurrected body? Or does it mean now? I believe it means both. Of course, one day, this body with all its weakness will be raised. At the end of the chapter tells us that. But meantime, we may know within us the power of his resurrection. Long before we had all this outburst of modern hymnology, for better or for worse, mostly for better, a lot of the modern songs, before that all happened, we used to sing a chorus, didn't we? Or some of us did. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. You ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. And when people got their theologies right, they began to say, that's not right, is it? Uh, I, you ask me how I know he lives, you ask me how I know he lives because the evidence of Scripture, because the truths you've been studying in the evening in John 20, and I'll be continuing tonight in John 21. It's these facts, how I know he lives, not because I have some experience, but because of what happened on, in post-resurrection days. He, he appeared to the disciples. We have the evidence so we can know he lives. But there is a truth in it. You know he lives within my heart. So I shall, unashamedly, continue to sing in my bath every now and again. He lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He lives within my heart because it is true. It's not the only way in which I know, but it's living out in the reality of my life the truth of the historic resurrection, experiencing the power. Thirdly, paying the price. I may know him, the power of resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. You see, immediately being converted, Paul was told, you must suffer many things for my name's sake. It's all there in Acts chapter 9. He had to learn that it was a life of suffering, a life of power, but a life of suffering. He had to learn that in fact it was often through suffering he got nearer to Christ. It was tough. I remember uh, uh, speaking at a student gathering some years ago when they read from the old version. And uh, it, the old version says, uh, being conformable to his death. Instead of uh, being like him in his death, being conformable 
uh, to his death. The student clearly hadn't read his passage through beforehand, and when he got to the word conformable, which was not a word he normally used, he read instead comfortable, which is not exactly what it means, being comfortable in his death. Uh, one had to explain that there was a rather different meaning of conformable. And uh, I do remember the days... The, the older member of the congregation will remember the days when we put up the, the new cross at the east end of the church. I always remember that wasn't altogether popular at first because we used to have a nice little silver cross there. And I can remember talking to uh, a number of people uh, uh, in the church when they were looking at this new cross the day before the bishop, whatever bishops do, and dedicated the church. And uh, I, was, I was conscious some of the older generation weren't as excited about it as I hoped they might have been. So, being a pastor, I know, bring out the problem straight away. So I said to them, do you like it then? To which clearly the answer was no, uh, as they shook their heads. And one lady said to me, well, you see, I don't feel very comfortable with it. And I was daring her to say, no, I don't think he felt very comfortable on it either. And they weren't sure they should laugh at that statement. Uh, 9.15 laughed, you didn't. You're a much more sober crowd at 11 o'clock. But you see, no... Do you like that cross now? I'm not sure you do, you don't. But you see, uh, whether we're comfortable with that kind of cross, whether we prefer a nice little silver cross, doesn't matter. He didn't die on a silver cross. He died on a blood-stained cross. It was costly. By all means, wear your silver crosses, but it wasn't like that, was it? It was ugly. It cost him his life and relationship with with the, the father he'd known. He had a price to pay. And Paul is now saying, my longing is to get nearer to that Christ. My willingness to take up the cross. In some ways, because we are living in an age when it's more costly everywhere to be a Christian, perhaps we are beginning to learn, perhaps, that there is a price to pay for following Jesus. I would submit to you, as I travel around the country preaching, that it's going to get more and more difficult to be a Christian who stands firm by what he believes and by the way he behaves. We're going to find ourselves more and more isolated. It's a price to pay. Jesus said, they hated me, they'll hate you. And you and I expect that. That's a longing. They long to be like Christ, knowing the person, experiencing the power, paying the price. And finally, the Christian waits to be with Christ. Verses 11 and 12. He uses the athletic metaphor, doesn't he? About a race, the start, the race, and the goal. The start is quite clear. Paul will say, you see, what a, what a different Paul he is. I'm not there at the moment. I'm still striving. This is resurrection reality life. Yes, he gets hold of us. Yes, we have a relationship with him, but no, we're not there yet. We're still straining forward to what lies ahead. But there is a start. And the start is that Paul, Jesus got hold of Paul, the risen Jesus, in verse 12. He took hold of him. And because Jesus took hold of him, his longing now is to become more like him. We start. May I... Ask that question, have you? So we don't drift into it. There is a start. You, we may not have a Damascus Road experience in the sort of dramatic way, but somewhere we are meant to make that start of the race. Paul started. Then there was the, the race itself. The humility comes out. 
How different is the Paul of verse 12 from the Saul of Tarsus of verses 5 and 6? Once he thought he had all the credentials. Now he knows he's not yet there. But he's got a race in front of him and he's straining to what lies ahead. He's longing to get there. And the race, of course, is the marathon race. I'm told it's the Sheffield Marathon next week, so there you are. Uh, I remember years ago suggesting from this pulpit that I was going to get a, 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 a sweater uh, with, the, with, the, with the motto on it, I have not run in the London Marathon. There aren't many of us left who haven't run in the London Marathon. Uh, I all remember the occasion we had, a, we had a confirmation service on the night of the Sheffield Half Marathon. A lady was in the 915. I, I didn't mention 915 because she was here. Uh, a lady was in the 915 service, ran the marathon, the half marathon, and sort of just arrived in time, almost to fall into the bishop's arms at the confirmation. She, she ran the marathon, ran into the church and got confirmed uh, virtually on, in the, on, on the home stretch. Anyway, that was the Sheffield Half Marathon. But the marathon is the Christian race. We are to run the race set before us. And Paul is still running. He's straining to what lies ahead. And what lies ahead is the, the glory of final resurrection day. It's a race. Well, you know, it's one secret of that race he runs. Forgetting what is behind. Many times we have to remember this communion service. We remember what Christ did for us. We do it in remembrance. Sometimes we're told to forget. And what was Paul saying? Why did he forget what lies behind? Sometimes what lies behind is our sense of failure. We recognize we're not worthy. We've let him down. Well, come to terms. Admit your failure. Ask his forgiveness. And then get running. Sometimes, sadly, it's because of the past and we think we've done rather well. And we're full of our own ability. That needs to be forgotten. Forget what lies behind. Strain to what lies ahead. The start, the race, and finally the goal, if I may come back to my uh, footballing metaphor. The goal is there. And the goal is, he mentions that word in verse 14, towards the goal to win the prize in this athletic metaphor. And the goal goes back to verse 11. Notice verse 11. Somehow, somehow, to attain the resurrection from the dead. And at the end of the chapter, he will talk about that resurrection. The glory of the resurrection body. The fact that one day we shall have a body like his. That we shall be with him. The glorious, unique Christian affirmation. You said you believe in the resurrection of the body. We, we must do. A day when there will be that glorious day when we shall be with him. We shall see him and we shall know him. We shall, be know, we shall know him as he knows us. That glorious moment. But what about that little word somehow? Have you seen it? That word somehow in verse 11? It can be misunderstood. It may seem to say that I might just get there and I might not get there. Well, that would deny all the rest of that passage. No, the somehow means this. He's sure he'll get there, but he's not sure how he will get there. What's going to happen between now and and then, I try not to uh, uh, embarrass my wife when I'm preaching at Christ Church Full, but just one, one story. Wives of preachers have a rough time, you know. They really do. Uh, but uh, she will allow me one story, I hope. If not, I shan't get a proper lunch today, so I hope she'll allow me one story. Before she learnt that uh, watching Sheffield Wednesday was a great joy, uh, and she got so fed up of her husband and son going after football that eventually Margaret decided you can't beat them, join them and she's a loyal 
Wednesday night. But I can remember in the days when she hadn't been initiated, she hadn't been enlightened to these truths. Margaret couldn't understand why, we watch, why I watched Match of the Day on a Saturday evening when I knew the score beforehand. She would say to me, what's the point in watching it? You know the score beforehand. I said, well, I want to see how they get the goals. Well, she said it was a goalless draw. Well, I said, I want to see how they <laughs> didn't get the goals. Well, I mean, it's just as important to see how they didn't get the goals. And in a way, that's what it's about, being a Christian. The goal, I believe, is certain. If you ask me, am I sure I should go to heaven? I should say yes. And if getting to heaven was a product of being good, I would be arrogant. But since it's all to do with my faith in Jesus, which is sure, the answer is yes. But how? What's going to happen between now and then? I know not. In fact, I'm glad I don't know. I know not. There is a kind of romance about what may happen between now and then. It may well be more suffering. But the intriguing thing of Paul, if you just flick back a page in your Bible to, Rome, to Philippians 1.12, and there's a lovely verse in Philippians 1.12 that makes sense of the rest, and I'm finished. Here is Paul can say in Philippians 1.12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Not the word really. We use the word really, not meaning it. Paul meant it. Has really served to advance the gospel. What did he mean? Listen, Paul had meant to get to Rome to be a preacher. He'd expected to get to Rome in a matter of weeks. It had taken him years, most of which he was in prison. And he arrived not as a preacher, but as a prisoner. But he says it's really happened to advance the gospel. After all, the Roman soldiers who were his guards, he helped to win them to Christ. We know that from the end of the letter. They would never have come to hear him preach in wherever he would have preached in Rome. In his own sovereign way, God had taken years to get Paul there, but it was all part of the plan. If I can look back in my life, if you can look back in your life and say, it's all helped to advance the gospel, what he's done in my life, can't we believe it will continue? Will Paul be released from prison? He doesn't know. He's ready to be with Christ, which is far better. And when you know the final goal is sure, the goal of that resurrection body of which he will speak at the end of the, of, the, of the chapter, then you can trust God for the way between now and then. What a difference it makes if I go into the future knowing I go with the risen Lord to the risen Lord. I'm in Christ. I'm longing to be like Christ. One day, I shall be with Christ and all possible because of the risen Lord Jesus. As in a minute, we're going to go to turn to prayer and John will lead us in prayer. Let's just pray through some of these things and particularly as we prepare to come to the Lord's table and remember the risen Lord who died to make it possible. Let's pray together and then John, after a moment's silence, we'll pray.